Well, I can tell that by that clapping that you all love that song, maybe about as much as I do. Maybe not, I don't know. For me, it goes all the way back to when I was five years old. We were missionaries in Hong Kong, and all the missionaries from all the denominations would get together once a month for a sing-along, and then there'd be a devotional. And this is one of the songs that we sang. And ever since then, since I was five years old, it just calls back memories, and it reminds me of what awaits us, which is our ultimate hope. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. Five weeks ago, we began the Advent season in this chapter, if you remember. And I said then that we would couch the Advent season in our hope. And so today, the last Sunday of the year, the Sunday after, we'll conclude uh, the season with the same chapter, Revelation chapter 21. Last week, we looked at finding connection in a year that's been marked by separation. We saw that Christ was born to be our shepherd and that whether or not you feel connected with him, he's connected with you. Because Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord, is our shepherd. And looking back, we can all see it if we know him as our savior. We can see how just how true it is that through it all, as we saw last week, We've been led. But have you ever wondered why it is that while looking behind us, we can see, you know, the effects of the shepherd, while we can see that we've been masterfully led, we can't see the shepherd himself? It's the same with the creator. While looking around us, we can see the effects of the creator, that it's been masterfully created. But we can't see the creator himself. You can't help but ask that this year, in this year of separation, if God is really there, why does he work so secretly? Why doesn't he show himself openly for all to see? Why the separation? It's like David said, why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself? In times of trouble. Or Job, how small a whisper, he said, do we hear of him. Or Isaiah, truly you are a God, he said, who hides himself. One French theologian put it this way. He put the words what most Christians feel at one time or another. I know I sure do. He said, why is it that the mind that has found God still retains or constantly reverts to the feeling of not having found him? Why does his absence weigh on us even sometimes in the presence itself? When face to face with him who penetrates all things, why that insurmountable obstacle, that unbridgeable gap? Why always a wall or a gaping void? Why do all things, as soon as they have shown him to us, betray us by concealing him again? We're going to see today that it's all because of the sea. Yes, the sea as in S-E-A. Which sea exactly? Well, listen carefully. On this last Sunday of a year that's been marked by separation from one another, I'd like to address and to answer the age-old question, why the separation from him? And if you're anything like me, it'll make you smile. 
though your heart is aching. Remember Nat King Cole's song? It hit the charts back in 1954 when we were missionaries in Hong Kong, the year I was born, actually. And being a melancholy type, I've often wondered if God wasn't trying to tell me something when I found out that that's when it hit the charts, the year I was born. And maybe today he wants to tell you something, too, in preparation for the year to come, that you can smile even though your heart is breaking because the music's playing. There's a song in the air always. Smile because the best is yet to come. Revelation 21 divides into two parts. In verses 1 to 8, we find out about the characteristics of the new creation. And then in verses 9 to 27, we see what really is the centerpiece of the new creation, New Jerusalem. We looked at the centerpiece of the new creation, uh, New Jerusalem, five weeks ago when we launched the Advent season. We launched it, if you remember, with our heavenly hope, which we saw as the ultimate reason for the season, that he came to live in our hearts, to transform us so we'd be fit and ready for our heavenly home. He came to take us home. Today, on the other side of the season, I'd like to end it as well with the ultimate reason for the season by turning from the centerpiece of the new creation, New Jerusalem, to what is by far the best of all its characteristics. It's the most unbelievable, the most unimaginable characteristic of the new creation, which we find in verses 1 to 3 of Revelation 21. And it's really helped me anyway in this year marked by separation. You'll need to stay with me because we'll have to do some digging to get there. But you're going to see that there's some real treasure here that will help us through the year to come. At the end of the chapter just before this, the end of Revelation 20, Revelation 20, if you'll turn back, verse 11, John said, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And then get this, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Whoa, what's going on here? This is when God himself will show up, when he'll appear on the great white throne to judge all mankind. And what this teaches is that when God finally shows up uh, in the fullness of his glory, the old creation will like completely disappear. Another translation is nothing could stand before his presence. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and nothing could stand before him. Which is the first clue we get here of why, until then, the separation between the creator and his creation. And then he says the same thing in a different way in the next chapter, our chapter for today. Chapter 21, verse 1 where John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. As we saw in the chapter just before, it passed away in the presence of the Creator. And then he tells us what cleared the way, we're going to see today, for the presence of the Creator, for the sea was no more. The first heaven and the first earth passed away 
And the sea was no more. And then he repeats what this made possible. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And here it is. This makes the, the, the holy city is where his presence will be. Uh, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with men. He's no longer absent. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. No longer any separation. The heart of these verses is the first characteristic, again, of the new creation, and that is the great presence of the new creation, and that is that God himself will be with us. And according to these verses, he'll be with us because there shall no longer be any sea. The sea shall be no more. Again, putting two and two together, the main idea here is this. God himself shall be among them, Revelation 21.3, because, Revelation 21.1, there shall no longer be any sea. Now, at first you do a double take. No longer any sea. How, how did that slip in here? What does this have to do with anything, much less with the presence of God? Is there something evil about the oceans that keep oceans out of heaven? That's what some commentators have said. And it sure sounds like it, unless you remember which sea John is talking about. Unless you let the scripture interpret the scripture, and especially the near context of the book of Revelation, which is the best interpreter of itself. He tells us about it back at the beginning of the book, if you'll turn there. Back in Revelation chapter 4. It's before it all passes away, where we learn something uh, about something that right now separates earth and heaven. When John saw a throne in heaven, Revelation 4, 2, and one seated uh, on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow uh, that had the appearance of an emerald. And then verse 5, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning the seven torches of fire, which are the seven uh, spirits of God, the seven... uh, Furnaces of fire. This is the Holy Spirit, the perfection of the Spirit. And why don't we see any of this right now? Why the insurmountable obstacle, as the theologian said, the unbridgeable gap? Well, it's because before reading on and under the throne, he says in verse 6, there was, as it were, a sea of what? Glass like crystal. A sea of glass like crystal. This is clearly not a natural sea. It says it's a crystal sea. It's it's not a liquid, but more like a solid, a celestial sea. One that stretches far and wide all around the throne of God in heaven. And it plunges deep beneath the throne of God in heaven. And we know that because it's what Ezekiel saw when he looked up at the throne of God in heaven. When he saw his throne, he was looking up from the earth, and he was careening his neck way back, looking up at the throne of God in heaven. But he couldn't quite see it very well. It was only a vague appearance of the throne and of God. 
because it says in Ezekiel 4.22 that before the throne of God and heaven, between the throne of God and him, that is between God and man, I saw something, he says, like an expanse. An awesome gleam of crystal. Sound familiar? I saw something like an expanse, an awesome gleam of crystal extending over our heads, and above the expanse over our heads was something kind of like, I can't quite see it, but resembling a throne. He could barely make it out because of the awesome expanse of crystal that was separating him from the throne. And he goes on to say this, and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with kind of the appearance, he says, I can't quite tell, of a man. Such was the appearance of just the likeness that I can see of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, just at the glimmer of it. What's going on here? When God brought Moses up to heaven in Exodus 24, it says that under his feet, that is under God's throne, there appeared to be, he said, a pavement of sapphire, which is a crystal stone. And it says it was as clear and deep as the sky. Wow. That's a pretty vast expanse under the throne. We're talking an oceanic expanse. There's much more, but putting it all together, back to Revelation 4, what John saw there was a solid sea, a vast expanse that stretched as far and wide as the eye could see and that plunged downward into an oceanic depth, a dimension of separation between the creator and his creation. It's a crystal sea that's in another dimension. You can't see it unless God gives you a vision like he did with John and with Ezekiel and with Moses. It's a sea that separates earth and heaven, one that helps answer the question, why? Why is it that the mind that has found God still retains or constantly reverts to the feeling of not having found him? Why that insurmountable obstacle, that unbridgeable gap? Why always a wall or a gaping void? Why can't we just see him? Well, it's because of the insurmountable, unbridgeable wall of a sea. It's the crystal sea that we sing about without fully understanding what we're saying. Remember victory in Jesus? I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory, and I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. Remember the hymn, that other shore, hallelujah, will be there forevermore when we reach the other shore. It's the sea that he'll bring us through when he calls us home to the upper shore of the crystal sea, the other shore. In Revelation 15, it says that one day we'll be standing on the top of it, on the, on the top of this sea of glass, holding harps of God. The idea is that he's raptured us through it. 
And we'll be holding harps of God, it says, singing the song of Moses. And to get there, he'll take us up through the sea, not across it, because right now we're under the sea. At the very bottom of this sea of separation. And what is it there for? Well, to make a long story short, the bottom line function of this great celestial ocean is this, is to separate a holy God from an unholy and fallen creation. And just as much is to protect the creatures that he so loves from his consuming fire. From what John saw in Revelation 4, from the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and the seven furnaces of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit in all his glory. The children of Israel couldn't even stand the sound of the rumblings and peals of thunder on the top of the mountain when he came down, much less the sight. And so they said, Moses, you go and we'll stay here. What's it there for? is to distance us from the one from whom, as we've seen, all heaven and earth will flee away when he finally appears in all his majesty and glory. It is to shield us from the, from the, the, the nuclear resplendence of the glory of God Almighty. You know, we think, we think the creation is a glorious thing, especially when you go up into the mountains. The earth is so full of his glory, isn't it? But just think of it. All that we see down here is only a glimpse, a glimmer, even the sun, a spark of his glory. It's only a flicker compared to the creator. So much so that we, in our fallen state, we would become like crispy critters in his presence. That's why Paul says we see as through a what? Glass dimly. 1 Corinthians 13, 20, uh, 12. He was speaking literally there, though we, we don't always realize that because now we know that indeed we see as through a crystal sea dimly. That's the glass. You see, God separated from us not because he's emotionally distant but because he's so emotionally compassionate. He's separated from us, not because he's weakly, but because he's holy. It's because he's mindful of our frame, like David said, that we are but flesh. It's because of what Job said. How small, it's because of that that Job said, how small a whisper. It's not the thunder. That the children of Israel couldn't, Israel couldn't stand. It's just a whisper. How small a whisper do we hear of him? Or Isaiah, truly you are God who hides himself. The crystal sea answers the age-old question that we began with. It becomes especially pressing for many in a season of separation. Where is he? Why can't we see him? Why the separation? Answer, It's simple. It's because, as it says all through Scripture, he's a consuming fire who in his mercy protects us through the crystal sea. So what difference does this make? How does this 
uh, apply to our lives. Well, you can't count the ways. Let me give you just a few, just seven. One, knowing that all we see is but a glimmer, a glimpse, a little bit, a little bitty spark of his glory helps us all the more stand in awe of our God. And to fall on our faces like Ezekiel did, like John did, depart from me. He fell on his feet as a dead man. Remember what Ezekiel did? I fell on my face. Even just seeing God through the crystal sea, he had to fall on our face. And it's good and healthy for a creature to do that. That's what we come here to do in good part as we worship him. Especially in a day when the fear of the Lord has all but become a lost virtue. When it's all gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and he'll pat you on the back and welcome you no matter what. When the Bible says his eyes are like a flame of fire, and his face is like the sun shining in its strength. So much so that John fell at his feet as a dead man. It's like Annie Dillard said, in Sunday school pictures, we saw Jesus in watercolor. We paint him saying, there, there, when in fact he says, fear not. We need to know that we serve an awesome God. And it's good for your soul to know that. It's like what C.S. Lewis said, the great spirit you so lightly invoked is not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, grandfather in the sky. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. No, the great spirit you so lightly invoke is the consuming fire himself, the love that made the world. What difference does it make to know about the crystal sea? One, we serve an awesome God. Two, we serve just as much a loving God. He's not distant because he doesn't care about you. No, his love is a consuming fire. It's the love that made the worlds. He's distant because he loves you. It's like someone said, without somehow destroying me in the process... How could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there were no room for doubt, there'd be no room for me. For no man can see God and live. He loves you, and so he's trying to win you, to woo you and all mankind, rather than just overwhelm you. And so he hides himself, so we'll relate to him by choice and not by compulsion. What difference does it make to know about the sea? Three, if you know him, he, he's preparing you for the day when he'll no longer be distant. When he'll reveal himself in a way that will leave no room for doubt and with plenty of room for you because he's purifying you and he's creating a new you that, that, so you won't be burnt up in that day. He's giving you, you might say, a little fire now so you can enjoy, enjoy a lot of fire then. <laughs> a consuming fire. He's letting 
more and more of his fire through the sea now in carefully measured amounts so you'll be ready for him then. It comes in the form of discipline, of affliction, of persecution, through all kinds of adversity, through the overcoming battle of the Christian life that Christ called it in Revelation 2 and 3. That's one of the main reasons why, as David said, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Why Christ said, in the world you will have tribulation, because he's preparing us for his overwhelming passion. It's why he puts us through so much agony to prepare us for his glory. And so he's burning away everything that's not like him while we're down here to ready us for what we'll encounter up there. For the fire that made the worlds, for the unmediated, unshielded blaze of our union with him, a consensual consummation that's going to be a conflagration. Forever. But hold that thought. I'm getting ahead of myself. What difference does the knowledge of the sea make? For it gives a reason for faith when we wonder if God is really there. There's nothing wrong with you or with the Christian faith that you can't see God. That there's an unbridgeable gap. It's like the song my mom played again and again after we left Hong Kong, after my first father died of cancer through her widowed years in uh, Colorado Springs. My sister and I were just toddlers, and we'll never forget the song. Why can't we see? If we could see beyond today as God can see. Remember that one? If all the clouds should roll away, the shadows flee. Or present griefs we would not threat. Each sorrow we would soon forget. For many joys are waiting yet. For you and me. And then here it is. If we could see, if we could know, we often say, but God in love a veil doth throw across our way. A sea doth throw across our way. We cannot see what lies before. And so we, what, cling to him the more in a way we wouldn't have otherwise. He leads us till this life is over. And then do what only the distance makes possible. Trust, it says, and obey. By your choice. And in the meantime, through the sea, we're surrounded by all these incredible glimmers of his glory, which leads to five, though we see us through a sea, through a glass darkly. What a sight it is. In fact, as someone said, all that we see beckons us. He's beckoning us through it all, through these whispers, these glimmers. All that we see beckons us to trust him for all that we can't see. Yes, he's left plenty of distance, plenty of space for faith. But looking around you, you'd have to be blind not to believe. Six. We talk about Independence Day when we gained our freedom as a nation, and that was a great thing, and this relates to some of what we've already talked about. But there's a far greater freedom, and that is, again, the freedom to choose him. The freedom that comes from having to choose him by faith, not sight, thanks to the sea through which we see us through a mirror dimly. One day, in a single lightning moment, all creation will pass away, and there will just be the souls that he's created, the souls of men. 
And in that day, Revelation 20, 11, in a single lightning moment, every knee will bow. And many of them, it will not be by choice. It's too late. It's by compulsion. But what we now enjoy is the freedom to choose him in the dark, through the pain, by faith, not sight. It's the opportunity of a lifetime, of an eternity, to come to him by choice right now, in this blink of a life, not by compulsion. Just like the song goes, one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day every knee will bow. We just saw that in Revelation 20. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who choose to gladly serve him now. So do it with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Finally, seven. The knowledge of the sea can stir the hope of heaven like nothing else. Which is John's point in Revelation. God himself will be with us in the new creation because there will no longer be any sea. In its absence, there will be a great presence, that of the consuming fire himself. Which picks up the deepest difference it makes. What's by far the best, and that is this. Picking up where I got ahead of myself... The fire below is preparing us for the fire above. And his fire will be like none other. Rather than being unbelievably painful, like his fire can be down here, it'll be unbelievably pleasurable. Rather than being a crispy critter, you'll be a fire forever with pleasure. Far from being Agony, it'll be ecstasy. It says in the Song of Solomon that when you fall in love down here, whether you know it or not, you're experiencing just a glimmer of God's fire up there. It's Song of Solomon 8.6. This is the love song, as you, most of you know, that Solomon wrote for his lover, for the Shudamite woman. And at the very end, he summed it up by saying, he said, he said our love... This marital love is as strong as death. Falling in love is as strong as death. Our jealousy for each other is as fierce of the, as the grave. And then listen to this. It is the very flame of the Lord. Just a glimmer. And so when we feel the fullness of his fire up there, it'll be like falling in love forever. Like I said, it'll be a consensual consummation that will be a conflagration in New Jerusalem, which will shine like the sun, the sun of the new earth. That's where we'll live, in the sun. Scripture says it'll be like the marriage bed. It says it'll be a joy unspeakable, Peter says, and full of glory. It says there will be a fullness of joy, David did, and pleasures forevermore. It says that all our ecstasies and intimacies will be with God himself. All because he went to prepare a place for us that where he is there we will be also in New Jerusalem. Which brings us back to where we left it off five weeks ago at the beginning of the Advent season. 
where the presence of God in New Jerusalem will fill every cubic inch, remember that, of the city's 3.75 billion cubic miles, where we'll be united with the Son in a blaze of glory, the blaze of our union with him, when Christ himself said the righteous, Matthew 11, will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Oh, truly, eye has not seen nor ear heard. We've just scratched the surface, what God has prepared for those who love him. These are just seven differences that understanding the crystal sea can make. And there are 70 times seven more that will make more than make up for this lifetime of separation. Because this lifetime of separation under and through it all is a lifetime of preparation. So smile, though your heart is aching, because the best is yet to come. Amen. Father, we want to thank you that even during this lifetime of separation, as we await the eternal union, that you've not left us on our own. Thank you that as we saw last week, you're with us to help us home to eternity, home to you. Oh God, our help in ages past, you're our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.